0: Well, on Wednesday nights, we have been taking a guided tour through the Bible. Last week, we finished the historical books. And before we jump into the books of poetry, I thought we'd take a one-week break and look at something from our Worth in the Word Bible reading. So if you have your Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 3. As we reminded you on Sunday, each week in your bulletin, there is a Bible reading plan. And as a church family, we are reading through the scriptures together. Today is January the 3rd, so we read Genesis 3 and Matthew 3 in our worth in the word. And tonight I want to give you some thoughts from the third chapter of Matthew. I do this from time to time just to remind us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is sufficient to help us become everything that God has called us to be. Wherever you take the Bible and wherever you open and read from, there will be something that will help you become the person that God wants you to be. And Matthew 3 is a great chapter of God's word, and there'll be much here tonight for us to enjoy. Let me ask you a a question. (laughs) Would you be willing to step off the stage and allow another to have the spotlight if it meant the success of a cause that's greater than yourself? That's exactly what quarterback Tony Romo did in 2016. For an entire decade, he was the star player of the Dallas Cowboys. In the first preseason game of 2016, Romo was scrambling, he was tackled, and he broke his collarbone, causing him to go on the injured list for 10 weeks. During the preseason, the backup quarterback was also injured, leaving only a recent fourth round draft pick as the team's quarterback. Much to everyone's surprise, Dak Prescott had one of the greatest rookie seasons in NFL history. By the time Romo was healthy and ready to return, the team was eight and one. The team made the difficult decision that they were going to stay with the hot hand of Prescott, effectively ending Romo's career. Many star players would have torn the locker room in part, and they would have fought behind the scenes to keep their job. That's not what Romo did. Here are some of his comments to the press that year. I think you all know that something magical is happening to our team. I'm not going to allow this situation to negatively affect Dak or this football team by becoming a constant distraction. Ultimately, it's about the team. That's what we've preached our entire lives. I want to leave you with something I've learned in this process. I feel like we have two battles going on, one with the man across from you, the second with the man inside of you. I think once you control the one inside of you, the one across from you doesn't really matter. Now, Romo was downright philosophical there. It is a struggle for us as fallen people to step aside, to allow someone else to have the spotlight. In business, we would like the promotion. We would like the title in the corner office. At church, we want to sing the solo or to teach the class or to sit on the deacon board. We are by nature spotlight seekers and glory stealers. That's part of our fallen condition. Today, we're going to meet a man who could have gone down as one of, if not the greatest leaders in all of the Bible. And at a crucial moment, he chose to give up the spotlight so that he might live in the shadow of the Son of God. Many choose to herald their own successes. John the Baptist surrendered his life to be the herald of the King. The Lord Jesus assessed his life and ministry when he said, Among them born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. John really was the greatest of all time. And his life teaches us a valuable principle. True greatness is not found in living for self. True greatness is found in living for the greatness of God. And as we go into a brand new year, let's all ask ourselves, what are we aiming for this year? Whose kingdom are we really trying to build? Whose greatness are we living for? John saw himself as a humble herald of the king. And if our lives are really going to matter for eternity, we must all see ourselves the same way. The title of the message this evening is Heralds of the King. And look with me at Matthew chapter 3 in verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and sang, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camels here, and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea in the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. But now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And we'll stop there for now. We'll notice tonight the man, his message, and the key moment of his life. I want you to notice in the first place the man. What a unique man in the pages of Scripture, John the Baptist. Two things immediately stuck out to me his manner and his ministry. Think about his manner for a moment. John the Baptist may have been the greatest born of women, but he was also one of the strangest born of women. (laughs) Now, John had a miraculous birth, if you remember. You can read about it in Luke chapter 1. He was cousin to the Lord Jesus. And though he grew up in the home of a priest, he chose the lifestyle of a prophet. We read here that he lived in the wilderness of Judea, that he conducted his ministry among the banks of the Jordan River. One commentator said that that region was an uninhabitable wasteland, miles and miles from the center of population. John was a country preacher who ministered in the middle of nowhere. In other words, the last place that you would choose to hold a large-scale evangelistic meeting. The Bible tells us that he clothed himself in camel hair. Some guys pay big uh, big money for a camel hair suit at the department store. I don't think John did. He used a rough piece of leather as his belt kids. I know we have boys and girls here tonight. He ate locusts and wild honey. The honey sounds good. The locusts I'm not too sure of, to be totally honest. Now, John didn't live in a remote location and wear what he wore and eat what he ate simply because he was strange. Like the prophets of old, he was a spectacle. His lifestyle was an object lesson meant to communicate a message. When you came into contact with the Old Testament prophets, sure, you remembered their preaching, but you also remembered their manner of life. They were different. They were unique. In many cases, they were odd. John was the second coming of a great prophet like Elijah and some had some of the um, eccentricities of a person like Elijah. Now, John's manner of life communicated a message. And that day, the Pharisees and Sadducees made up the religious establishment. And they were kind of an aristocracy of ruling teachers. They had a lot of authority. Now, they lived in Jerusalem, and they have a lot of degrees. And they wore fancy robes and lived in nice houses and had a class that was above the class of the people who heard them. John, on the other hand, was a complete contrast. He lived in the country. He had no formal education that we know of. He wore common clothes. He ate like a poor man. Now the point could not have been clearer to those that saw him and heard him. If they were going to have a relationship with God, they would have to leave the religious establishment of their day for something that was more authentic. Religion often turns the spotlight away from God. It places it on ceremonies and cathedrals and charismatic leaders. John was a simple man with a simple message who called people to an authentic relationship with God and put the spotlight back on the coming Messiah rather than on the religion of his day. That was his manner. I noticed not only his manner, but his ministry. It says in verse 1 In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And note that John came preaching. That's key to understanding his unique role in the Bible. The word preaching is keruso. In its noun form, it referred to one who would announce the coming of the king. That man was called a herald. Verse 3 tells us that John was the one predicted by Isaiah who would prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. He was a herald. He was a forerunner of the Messiah. Now, in ancient times, when a king would visit a city he would send his heralds to go before him. The heralds had two functions. First, they would announce his coming to the people of the city so they would be prepared for the king's arrival. If the king was coming, his people ought to be prepared for it and ready to greet them. So the herald would go to the city center and he would say, the king is coming, the king is coming, get ready for his arrival. Not only did they announce the king's coming, but they prepared the king's way. In those days, the roads were treacherous. They were dangerous. They didn't have paved roads. They didn't have the Department of Transportation back then. And if someone was going to be robbed, it was likely to happen on one of the roadways. There would be a pothole or a tree that was falling across the road and thieves would, of course, seize on that kind of thing and they would rob and do damage. If the king was coming with his royal chariots, the herald's job was to make sure the road was ready for the king. So that when he came, his coming would be safe and, it, and the road would be easy. They would often have to take the low places in the road and they would have to raise them up and make them level. They would take the high places in the road where there could be some kind of accident and they would bring them low. So it was the herald's job not only to announce the king's coming, but to prepare the road for the king's arrival. Now that is exactly what John the Baptist did in a metaphorical sense for the Lord Jesus. Now, remember, Matthew's gospel presents Christ as king. Every one of the gospel records emphasizes a different aspect of the Lord Jesus' ministry. Matthew presents the Lord Jesus as king. In chapter 1, he is the king coming from the line of David. That's why you have the genealogy there. In chapter 2, the wise men from the east journey, so they might worship him, born king of the Jews. Now in chapter 3, God sends his prophesied herald before the coming of the king. And John was not just announcing the coming of any earthly king, any Roman Caesar. He was announcing the arrival of the king of kings. And he didn't ask people to prepare a dirt road. He asked them to prepare a road into their heart so that the king might enter there and rule there. That was his purpose. Now, as we think about the ministry of John, he stated his ministry philosophy in John three thirty, where he said, he must increase, talking about Christ, but I must decrease. If you want to know anything about the life of John the Baptist, you need to know this about him. Everything in his life was about the Lord Jesus. He wanted Christ to increase. And he knew that for Jesus to increase, John would have to decrease John had three jobs to proclaim the way of the Lord, to prepare the way of the Lord, and to get out of the way of the Lord. And he did it. Now, don't miss this. John had a unique role in ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah. Nobody else in human history will ever have that role like John the Baptist had it. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. But can I say this to you tonight? We are all heralds of the king. Amen. Jesus said in Mark 16:15, "Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature." He has called all of us to go as heralds. And we're to go to our families, and we're to go to our workplaces, we're to go to our neighborhoods, and we announce his first coming. He has come, God has arrived, he has died, he has risen again. The Messiah We go out into the world and we announce His first coming. But we do even more than that. We prepare the souls of the people we talk to for His second coming. We are all heralds of the King. It's all of our mission. And that mission can only be accomplished by people who are willing to decrease so Christ can increase. I want you to think about the one thing that keeps people from really being heralds of the king, from sharing the gospel and proclaiming the good news. I'm going to tell you at the top of everybody's list, though you might not write it there, is pride. We want people to think well of us. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want anybody to mock us or make fun of us because we've shared the gospel with them. We are so interested in our increasing in the eyes of people That we think very little about whether they know Jesus. And to accomplish our mission as heralds of the King, He must increase and we must decrease. On opposite ends of the spectrum are two competing desires in life. On one end of the spectrum, there is a a desire that says, I must increase. My life is about me, my job is about my ambitions, my family is there to meet my needs. My money is just about my pleasure. My free time is about my comfort. My talents are about making my name great. And though none of us would ever say those things out loud, if our lives were examined, we would have to say that my life is about increasing myself. If we increase, by virtue of default, Christ must decrease. But on the other end of the spectrum are those who say, My life is about Christ increasing. My job is about His glory. My family is about His purpose. My money is for His mission. My free time and my talents are about making His name great, not my own. He must increase. And by default, when He increases, you will decrease. Let's just make it real simple tonight, real clear. Right now in all of our lives... Christ is either increasing and we are decreasing or Christ is decreasing and we are increasing. Here's what John's life teaches us and don't miss it. Greatness in life is about figuring out who really deserves the spotlight, who should really increase. We don't ever become people God can greatly use until we figure out that we exist for God. He does not exist for us. We exist so he can increase. And by default, we must decrease. That was the man. His manner strange, but it communicated a message. His ministry to prepare the way for the king to increase or to decrease so Christ might increase. That was the man. I want you to notice in the second place, his message. John was a preacher and he had a very simple message. Look at verse 2. He came preaching into Judea saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a simple message. It had one point. And boy, you Baptists would really love if your pastor's message had only had one point. It had one point and he would always tack on the end, a warning. So let's look at his one point. It's very simple. Repent. Repent repent ye, which in West Texan just means repent y'all. Repent all of you. Of course, the word repent means to change your mind. In the Old Testament, it was the concept of turning around, doing a 180. Repentance is a turning from something and a turning to something. It's a turning from your sin and your ability to save yourself and turning to the Lord Jesus. I want you to know that all of the great Old Testament and New Testament preachers were repentance preachers. Remember Jesus' first message in Mark 1:15: The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repentance was not only John's message and Jesus's message, it was Peter's message. He preached on the day of Pentecost and all those people wanted to know, okay, Peter, what should we do now? You remember what he told them? He said, repent in Acts 2. Paul was a repentance preacher. It says in Acts 20, I was testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. If John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles Peter and Paul preached, it must be an important message for all of us to hear. Would you agree with that? There must be a turning from our sin and a turning by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things must happen together for a person to be saved. Now, if you went out to the banks of the Jordan River and you heard the great John the Baptist preach and hundreds, if not thousands, were flocking to hear his messages... His message, as you were taking notes, would only have one point, repent. And he would say that for a while, and he'd beat that nail, and he'd beat it, and he'd beat it, and he'd beat it for a little while. And you might ask John the Baptist, don't you have another point? What's point number two? He would say, I don't have another point. You're not ready for the second point until you've obeyed the first point. Now, that's actually very profound. Because for most of us, our problem isn't that we don't know the truth. Is that we don't obey the truth we know. And apparently, John didn't tell people uh, what they needed to repent of. He didn't spend a lot of time talking to people about that. And the vast majority of us don't need to be told either. When we're told to repent, we usually know exactly what we need to repent of, right? The Holy Spirit makes that crystal clear. Let me ask you, is there an area of your life where you need to change your mind? Maybe there's a relationship you're in and you shouldn't be in it. Maybe you're a teenager and you have a bad attitude towards your mom and dad. And every time someone starts talking about repentance, the Holy Spirit brings that attitude to mind. Perhaps you're here tonight and you need to repent of the way you spend your money or your free time or some of the things you're watching on the television or some of the associations that you have. Maybe it's not a sin of commission. Maybe it's a sin of omission. You need to change your mind about giving out the gospel. You need to change your mind about your involvement in serving in the church. The truth of the matter is that for all of us, there could be many different things. But we're not ready for point two until we've dealt with point one. And point one is very simply repent. By the way, repentance is not only something we need the moment we trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. Repentance is a way of life for the Christian. Every day of my life, I come honestly to God's word. And I allow the Holy Spirit of God to do his work in me. I find some area of my life where I need to repent. Repentance is a way of life for the believer. Have you repented today? We're going to give you an opportunity here in just a moment. After John preached his one point, he would tack on a warning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is a much bigger subject than we can get into on a Wednesday night. But here's what it basically means. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is heaven ruling on earth. And if the Jewish people would have accepted the ruling of Jesus Christ, as he, let me say it clearer. If the Jewish people would have accepted the rule of King Jesus, he would have set up his physical kingdom on earth. They rejected the king, and now the king rules in the hearts of his people. So how does the king rule? Not in a physical kingdom in the here and now. The king rules from heaven in the hearts of all of those who have bowed their knees to him. So the kingdom of heaven, we could say, is at hand among all of those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. There is another sense in which we can say the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, the millennial reign of Christ where he really does rule on earth, that could happen at any moment, right? The rapture of the church is the next event on God's divine calendar. And it could happen before this church service is even over. And seven years later, the Lord Jesus would be back and he would set up his physical kingdom. So we really can say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, put yourself in the sandals of those who heard this rough country preacher with kind of a rough message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They would have perceived that as a warning. Get right with God now before it's too late. And we read a little bit about what John said about that. There's one coming after me who's going to baptize you not with water, but with fire. And what he was talking about is when the Lord Jesus does return and set up his kingdom, he will judge the earth. He will purge and he will discern between the wheat and the chaff, between those who have truly repented and trusted in Christ and those who have not. This was a message, not a feel-good message. It was a message of judgment. He said, you need to repent and do it now because the kingdom is coming. Now, there are two events that can happen in all of our lives at any moment. One, of course, is the return of Christ. We've already talked about that. The Bible says he is going to return as a thief in the night. I don't know if you've ever been robbed before, but thieves don't send out advance notice that they're coming. You're not going to get a reminder email that they're on the way. Thieves show up when you're sleeping. And Jesus said that a whole generation is going to be asleep when he returns. And I just remind you, he could come at any moment. That's why there's urgency to repent now. And there's another event that can happen at any moment, and that, of course, is our death. Uh, This may come as a surprise to most people, uh, but death could happen at any moment. Uh, Many Sundays, I stand behind this pulpit And I preach to people not knowing that before the next Lord's day, that person will have entered into eternity. And it's amazing. And it isn't always the oldest or sickest among us. Thomas Watson was a Puritan, and he said that he preached as a dying man to dying men. We just don't know when we're going to die. John's message had appeal. And John's message had an impact because there was urgency in it. He called people to do today what they would wish they had done when Jesus returned, when the kingdom of God came. And here's what I want to ask you to do tonight. Look at today from the perspective of tomorrow. Look at right now from the perspective of the end times. 10 billion years from today, you will not care one iota about keeping up with the Joneses. And you won't care who said, I'm sorry first. You should do today what the you 10 billion years from today will have wished you had done today. Because our death and the return of Jesus Christ could happen at any moment. So repent now, because the kingdom of God is at hand. It was an urgent message, and people responded to it by the thousands. That was the man. That was the message. Let's talk about a moment. The most important moment of John's life. The moment that his life intersected with the one that he preached with the Lord Jesus. Look with you at Matthew 3 and verse 13. Then come a Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer or allow it to be now so. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting or resting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven sang, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, this is a watershed moment in the life of John the Baptist. The moment he finally gets to be in the presence of the one he loved, the one who he served for an entire lifetime. And he had the tremendous privilege of baptizing the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, the baptism of Christ was his first event. It began what's called his public ministry. You need to know that baptism was already an accepted practice in Judaism at this time. John didn't invent it. The Jews baptized Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. Jews would also be baptized to signify a ritual cleansing before they offered a sacrifice At the temple. In that case, it was the picture of being cleansed or washed from sins. But the baptism of John was different. It was not a baptism of conversion or cleansing. The baptism of John was about repentance. Remember, that was his message, repent. They would confess their sins and be baptized as a sign that they really meant business about changing their lives, that they were going to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. And I know this is not necessarily the thing that we're supposed to do, but I think we'd have fewer baptisms if we made everybody stand in the baptismal tank and confess their sins before they did it. It showed these folks were really serious about their repentance. Now that should bring a question in your mind. When Jesus comes to John and says, baptize me, why then would would Jesus seek the baptism of John if it was about repentance? John was confused. (laughs) He wasn't going to allow uh, Jesus to be baptized. He said, you need to baptize me. I don't need to baptize you. John knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus doesn't have anything that he needs to repent of. He doesn't need John's baptism because he has no sin. John says, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. Jesus said, baptize me. It becometh or it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that little statement, I think, requires a little explanation. And if you read it today, you might have wondered, what was Jesus talking about there? Let me ask you a question. Was any of Jesus' righteousness unfulfilled? Did he lack righteousness? Did he need his righteousness tank topped off? Certainly not. So what's happening here? Why did Jesus request to be baptized? In the first act of his public ministry, Jesus is beginning the ministry of substitution. John's baptism was about repentance. The baptism of Jesus was about substitution, or if I can say it this way, identification. See, Jesus did not need to be baptized. Jesus did not, excuse me, let me say it this way. Jesus did not need to repent, but we did. (laughs) And in his baptism, the righteous one identifies with our sin and our unrighteousness. Isaiah 53 gave the prophecy about the suffering servant. It said that he would be numbered with the transgressor. And Jesus coming to this world and living life as a human being was about him being numbered with transgressors. He who had no sin would in his incarnation take his place among those who had no righteousness. And to make us righteous... He would have to identify with our sin and, of course, on the cross become our sin-bearer and our substitute. Paul said it so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, For he, God the Father, hath made him God the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the baptism of Jesus was about identifying with our sin it anticipated the day that he would become a substitute for our sin. I want you to imagine that as Jesus comes to John that day, and he's going to be baptized, that everybody in the multitude on the banks of the Jordan River was wearing a name tag. By the way, I hate wearing name tags. They give me one for mission conference, I don't ever wear it. They give me one um, for the couples conference, I don't ever wear it. I figure I'm the pastor and people know my name, okay? I'm an introvert. I really don't want to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't know my name. Y'all pray for me, all right? (laughs) But I need to, because I'm a herald of the king, amen? Well, imagine, everybody on the banks of the Jordan River was wearing a name tag that day. And under their name was a label, Sinner. Jesus was the only one on the banks of the Jordan River that day with a different name tag. It had his name, Jesus, the Son of God. And he wore the label righteous. And I want you to imagine that as Jesus was stepping down through the crowd and into the water, that he took the name tag off of every sinful person. And he put those name tags on himself. So that when he stepped into the water, he was not being baptized because he needed repentance. He was being baptized for those who did need to repent. And of course, all of his ministry would be for the moment that he would take those name tags to the cross... And God would treat his son who had identified with sinners as a substitute for sinners. He would pay the penalty of our unrighteousness so we would not have to. And even though he was wearing their name tag and dying on their behalf, they would beat him beyond recognition. They scourged his back and they plucked out his beard. They rammed a crown of thorns onto his head and they nailed him to an old rugged cross. Have you ever wondered why the cross was so bloody and brutal? The bloodiness and brutality of the cross is so disgusting because our sin is so disgusting. And on the cross, Jesus was identifying himself with every act of abuse, with every hateful, vengeful word, with every act of adultery, every lie, every act of hypocrisy. And not only was he identifying with that sin, he was being punished for it as if he was the one Who had done it? Let me say it this way He wore the name tag of our sin so we could wear the name tag of His righteousness. So that when we come by repentance and faith to Christ, God the Father could now look at you and me and say, This is my beloved son, or this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. That's what the baptism of Jesus was about. He began the process of identifying with our sin so that he could become a substitute for our sin. He was numbered with transgressors. Let me tell you today, the only way to be saved is to identify yourself by faith with the one who identified himself with you. In the words of Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about your ability to deal with that sin through religion and good works and just trying harder and recognize Jesus did all the work that had to be done on the cross and all you must do is enter into it by repentance and faith in him. The moment you do that, all your sins are forgiven and you are given the label righteous, not because you're righteous, but because by faith you receive the righteousness of Christ. He no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you as a beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. This is good news. Now here's the point. John understood all of this way before the disciples got it. You remember what John said the moment he saw Jesus? It's in John's gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all the earth John got it. He understood that Jesus would identify with sinners. He understood that Jesus would die for sinners. And that's why John didn't live for himself. When you understand who Jesus is, and you understand what he did for you, even the greatness of the greatest man born of woman is a flickering candle compared to the blazing sun of the greatness of Christ. John knew who Jesus was, and he knew what he was coming to do, and that's why he said, I can't live for myself. And if you're a Christian, you know who Jesus is, and you know what he came to do, and you know what he's done for you. And you can't live for yourself. This chapter, Matthew 3, opens with the spotlight on John. Who's the spotlight on at the end of the chapter? Jesus. It begins with a focus on the herald. It ends with a focus on the king. And I have a feeling that's exactly how John would have wanted it. Jesus was increasing. John was decreasing. Let me ask you tonight, what are you really living for this year? Is your goal really just to get that promotion, make some extra money, take a few vacations? Folks, all of those things can be done to the glory of God, okay? But there is more to life than that. We are here for the same reason as John. To proclaim the way of the king, to prepare the way of the king, and to get out of the way of the king. We are his humble heralds. And in many cases, the only thing keeping us from being the heralds we ought to be is the desire for our own glory. We cannot live for his greatness while we live for our own. Jeremiah said, seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. John said, he must increase and I must decrease. If you're going to live a truly great life, here's what you have to do. Surrender the throne of your heart to the only king who's worthy to sit upon it. Live for his glory, live for his mission, not for your own decrease so he can increase and become a herald of the king. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I'm so thankful for this chapter of your word that I was able to read and study this morning. How it warmed my heart. God, I want to be as gripped by the greatness of the Lord Jesus as John the Baptist was. would to God that the prayer of every sincere Christian here tonight would be that Christ would increase in our lives, that more of Him would be seen, that more of Him would be shared, that our lives would be decreasingly about our, or increasingly not about ourselves, they'd be about the Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, help us to take seriously tonight our responsibility to be heralds, to tell people about the coming of the King. May each of us live our lives as John the Baptist sought to live his.